Um, this morning, our focus is on times and seasons, and I've got two themes, death and fear, and life and abundance. So shall we pray? Lord God, Father, Abba, Holy Spirit, come. Lord, we recognize that you are the heart of creation. That not, not one sparrow falls from the air. Not one hair on our head falls without you knowing. And that we can't even take the next breath without you upholding us. We are so grateful, God, for the life that you've breathed into us. And I pray that today we will be a people who can really grab hold of what you want to say to us and that this would bring us life and life in abundance. Amen. Amen. So Ecclesiastes 3. There is a time for everything and a season for every activity under the heavens. A time to be born and a time to die. A time to plant and a time to uproot. A time to kill and a time to heal. A time to tear down and a time to build. A time to weep and a time to laugh. A time to mourn and a time to dance. A time to scatter stones and a time to gather them. A time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing. A time to search and a time to give up. A time to keep and a time to throw away. A time to tear and a time to mend. A time to be silent and a time to speak. A time to love and a time to hate. A time for war and a time for peace. Just take one moment. What season are you going through right now? Can you recognize the time that you are in? Just take a moment. So today, as we thank the PACE team for their investment in Warsaw, in Junction 10, in our children, in Grace Academy Darleston, and we release them into their destiny, it's time of endings and a time of beginnings. A new season starts as an old season ends. A time of some things dying and some things being born. You see, God is a God of times and he works in seasons. Daniel 2.21 says, he changes times and seasons. He removes kings and set kings up. In Acts 1.7, when asked about the future, Jesus says that the Father has fixed the times and the seasons by his own authority. Psalm 1 says, a righteous person is like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever he does prospers. And I wonder how often we pause, step back from our situation, and consider the times and seasons. There is hope in every season. We should persevere in the season that we find ourselves in. 
In fact, Galatians 6, 9 sums it up nicely. And do not, and let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. I also like uh, 1 Chronicles 12. I find it really interesting. Uh, It's a chapter about all those people who joined the King David. And there's one verse, verse 32, that has this interesting phrase. From Issachar, men who understood the times and knew what Israel should do. From Issachar, men who understood the times and knew what Israel should do. As the people of God at Junction 10, I pray that we will understand the times so that we know what we should do, that we will see God's seasons and times and as a result, flow in his purposes. Knowing the seasons and the times isn't just helpful, it's absolutely essential as we follow Jesus. If we don't recognize the seasons, we're likely to interpret the events of our life incorrectly and take the wrong action even though we may have the right revelation. I'll say that again. If we don't recognize the seasons, we're likely to interpret the events of our lives incorrectly and take the wrong action, even though we have the right revelation. Let's have a look at an example from the Bible. The disciple Peter spent three years living with, following, learning from Jesus, yet he still hadn't quite learned this lesson of seasons and times. When Jesus explains that he must die, Peter rebukes Jesus and says indignantly, this will never happen. What's Jesus' response? Get thee behind me, Satan. You are an offense to me. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. And I'm not going to criticize Peter one little bit. Because faced with the death of my best friend, faced with a situation completely different to what I expected, I think I'd be the same, wouldn't you? Let's be honest, we often get an idea fixed in our heads based on a revelation from God. But I just wonder how many times do we miss what God says next because we get the timing or the season wrong. Peter, who just got it so wrong is the same Peter who just a few verses earlier got it so right. He had a revelation that Jesus was the Christ. And in response to this, Jesus said, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter. And on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I will give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you, Peter. On this rock, I will build my church. I will give you the keys of the kingdom. Wow, just from that one bit of revelation that Jesus is Messiah. Yet, a few verses later, Peter goes from church foundations to an offense. From revelation to a stumbling block. From blessed to Satan. Why? Well, I think it could be that Peter misjudged the times and seasons. He recognized that this was a season of life, and he got that bit. But he missed that it was a time of death. He wanted the Messiah to live, yes. But he hadn't grasped the greater truth that resurrection follows dying, that new life is birthed from death.
To understand the seasons, there's no better place to look than God's creation. We have harvest, a time for reaping and gathering. We have autumn, a time for preparing the ground and planting. We have winter to leave it fallow. We have spring, a time for planting a new birth. Summer, a time of growth. And we end up back at harvest. And if we don't respect the seasons, we're in trouble. It would be foolish to leave things fallow when we should be harvesting. We shouldn't harvest when things are just starting to grow. And if we miss the planting time, none of the rest happens. So, on the screen here should be our garden. Well, a little bit of it anyway. Um, you can see that there's sweet corn and there's rhubarb and there's peas. Sweet corn is just in its growing season. Peas are just producing their first pods. But the rhubarb actually was at the end of the harvest. After I took this picture, we took it all out and enjoyed rhubarb crumble. Um, each kind has its own times in the season. So we have to recognize not just the season we're in, but the times. Going back to Peter, I wonder if he missed the times. The greater truth of resurrection and death because of fear. I wonder whether that was one of the things going on. As human beings, at the very basic level, fear is a natural and helpful instinct. The chances are that you and I wouldn't be alive today without a healthy sense of when danger's lurking. We have a fight or flight response, a basic instinct. When we're threatened with death, to either run away or to get stuck in. Well, that might have been great when facing a wild beast, but that same primeval response can get in the way in a modern, civilised society. Just think, how do you feel when you have made a really big mistake that could land you in big trouble? Or when you get told off by your boss or your mum or your wife? <laughs> Not that that ever happens. Um, maybe even this. You might have heard people say, I feel as if, or I felt as if I was going to die. It's the fear of death that robs us and enslaves us. Now, fear of physical death is one dimension of fear. But often, our most debilitating fears, the ones that can send us off on the wrong track or keep us from our destiny, are more subtle. It might be a fear of failure that stops us stepping out into the things of God. We fear the thing will die even before it's born. Have you ever used the phrase dying of embarrassment? Fearing that we might look foolish or silly holds us back. And again, it's a fear of death. The death of our image or the death of our reputation. Or it might be fear of man, worried that other people might not agree. We fear the death of their approval. Or it might be the fear that our dreams or our plans will die. And Vicky and I have been through this in recent months. As our dear friend Jonathan Bentley uh, stepped down as leader of this church, over the following months as we processed what God was saying to us, we experienced a time of death. This wasn't the way we thought things were supposed to work out. 
This was the death of a future we'd hoped for. Death of plans that we'd made based on Jonathan leading Junction 10. Death, even, of some of our dreams. And it hurt. There were some tears and mourning as we tried to make sense of things. And just as an aside, can I say that the Bible says, rejoice with those who rejoice and mourn with those who mourn. And this is really good advice. If someone's mourning death, please don't try and fix it. Don't try and get them into a different season. When Vicky and I work with couples going through very difficult periods, we often share this diagram, the, the circle or the cycle of traumatic life events. And it really helps when you're going through some of this stuff to know that there is a cycle. There is shock, there's denial and disbelief, there's anger, there's hopelessness and despair, there's loss and grief, there's sadness, and then eventually we get to acceptance, we adjust, we recover and start to integrate, we move forward, we reflect, we gain our strength. And we always encourage couples to avoid two extremes. Moving through that cycle too quickly, especially the painful parts that you want to get out of, or getting really stuck in one of the phases. We also recognise that people will be in different places at different times. So again, please avoid the temptation to try and get someone else from where they are to where you are. As painful and as uncomfortable as it might be, each of these times has its purpose. Psalm 71, 14 says, I will always have hope. So whilst Vicky and I mourned, we also tried our best to continually live by faith in the hope of a greater reality. That all things work together for good for those who love God and are called according to his purposes. That his thoughts and his ways are higher than ours. That he loves us and has the absolute best for us. And as confusing as it might be, this is all part of his purposes. And as we did, we surrendered all to Father God, allowing him to speak into this particular death, guiding us forward into the unknown, but with a hope of resurrection, of new life. The Bible talks a lot about fear and faith. Fear is the enemy of faith, and they cannot coexist. But faith trumps fear. Whenever you're anxious or worried, look a little deeper. Where do you need to replace fear with faith? Where do you need to replace fear with faith? And how do you do that? Well, the answer is love. The answer is always love. The Bible says that perfect love casts out fear. Fully trusting that our heavenly dad loves us, we remind ourselves time and time again that his love is complete. We live in and we flow out of that love and we stay close in this loving, extravagant, exuberant relationship. And this leads to my final point about abundance. Jesus announced, I have come so that they may have life 
and have it in abundance. If we want that abundant life, we embrace the Jesus way. And I hope you've realized by now that the Jesus way is a way of death and resurrection. We cannot have resurrection life without death. Once we fully embrace this, once we embrace death, once we come to terms with it, when we look at it full in the face with the eyes of faith, it loses its power over us. The most dangerous people on the planet have been those who were not afraid to die. Let me ask you a powerful question, one that I heard probably about a decade ago in a sermon at Junction 10. What would you do if you were not afraid? Just think to yourself now, what would I do if I weren't afraid? Take that question home with you. Have a think about it. What would you do if you were not afraid? John Wimber famously said that faith is a four-lettered word spelt R-I-S-K. If we want our Christian life to be abundant, we have to replace fear with an active faith. And that will mean the adventure of taking risks. The Bible says we live by faith and not by sight. Walking by sight doesn't need any risk because we can see where we're going. Active faith means stepping out into the unseen, stretching towards something hoped for, taking the risk and not allowing fear, the enemy of faith, to keep you from your destiny and your abundance. So how does this abundant life link into seasons and times? To finish, I want to talk you through a diagram on seasons. The six stages of faith. And I hope you find this as helpful and thought-provoking as I did last year when I came across it. So the first stage of the six is one of romance and encounter. God has been wooing you, and it's your sense increasingly of your need for God, of innocence and awe. In stage one, you discover the cross. You know that Jesus died on the cross, and his cross made a way for you with God. Often you recognize your worthlessness and your need of grace, so you say yes. But to be honest, at that stage, you don't really know everything you're saying yes to. And although this is a lovely stage, we can't stay here. If we do, we end up stuck in a sense of worthlessness and ignorance, and we do not grow. So we move into stage two. Stage two is a stage of learning. It grounds us as we learn about God. We learn the inner life of discipleship. It's mainly an internal process, discovering the gifts. We grow in what it means to follow Jesus. And usually this phase is where our learning comes from a leader or a system or a structure. We learn more about the place of the cross in our life. We, get, we gain a sense of rightness and security in our faith. But the danger with staying in this season is that we can become self-righteous and everything becomes about rules. We can become self-centered and we can end up with a right and wrong, in and out, them and us attitude. You'll find that people who are stuck here are the ones who are rigid or lack grace or regularly switch churches because it's all about meeting my needs. 
The third stage is an outward stage of productivity and achievement. The focus moves from us to others. As we begin to serve using our spiritual gifts, we become useful to the kingdom. This stage brings us a uniqueness in our community, a sense of belonging to a church or a cause and being part of the body, taking greater responsibility in areas of our lives like work, home and church. The danger with this particular stage is that we can become overly zealous in our way or we become weary in well-doing or we view our lives as performance rather than grace. And the big challenge about this stage is that many, many believers and many churches believe the journey stops here. But the problem is, what happens when being productive doesn't work anymore? What happens when the things we used to believe so strongly no longer make sense? What happens when our early convictions of faith now seem a bit shaky and empty and hollow? What happens when we begin to say, there must be more than this? An unchurched new believer, John Wimber, when attending a church service, famously asked, where is all the stuff? And what he meant was, when he read the Gospels, when he read the book of Acts, when he saw what Jesus did, when he saw what the disciples did, and then he compared that to his experience of church, he knew there must be more than this. And that desire to get the more than this that God had led to a major charismatic renewal with healing signs and wonders being restored to the church. You see, it should be okay to look at our Christian walk, to look at our experience of church and expect more. God is so big, God is so creative, God is so powerful, there must be more than this. So there are some more stages if we're bold enough and prepared to take the risk. Stage four is the difficult one. Stage four is the uncomfortable one. It's the place of the inner journey of reflection, and it involves questioning and exploring and dancing around issues. And this is the place of the wall. Well, the wall anyway. Um, often triggered by a crisis or a loss of certainty, or a moment of new encounter, or even the fact that what used to work no longer seems to work, or what used to make sense no longer makes sense. The convictions you held at stage two no longer hold for you, and you hit the wall. Now, the other side of the wall, growth is beckoning, but it can feel like you're losing your religion. The wall is a pivotal point, and how you handle the wall will determine how you continue to grow. The critical, crucial thing to know at this stage is that progression in the kingdom isn't linear. Your progression in the kingdom is in seasons. Your development as a follower of Christ is not a straight line. Often, things have to be blown up, things have to be shaken, things have to be torn down, things have to die. And here's the health warning. The Christian life is not set up well for people in stage four. The church doesn't handle stage four very well. You see, when you hit the wall, it is so uncomfortable, you'll be tempted to leave 
or to give up. Or to go back to stage three and try and get more productive because you think that must be the answer. And many, many, many people do. Others will often try and send you back to stage three because most people, most churches, think productivity is the pinnacle of your faith journey. And if you don't stay productive, then something must be wrong with you. In stage four, others might feel as though you're losing the plot. But you know that despite your productivity in stage three, deep down within you, right in your very depths, Something was out of step. You'd learned how to act as a Christian. You'd learned how to do church. But somewhere at the root of that was striving or commitment or duty or guilt. You know, Jesus offered you an abundant life. You know Jesus offered to give you rest and a light and easy yoke. But that seems like a pipe dream because in your productivity, you are weary, you are heavy laden, you are worn out, you are burnt out. Stage four, the wall, is the place where you get to choose to abandon striving, abandon productivity in favour of the unforced rhythms of grace. You get to trade stage three for the freedom, the abundance of heaven now not only heaven when you die. When you hit the wall, you have a decision to make. It is a moment of facing truths, truths that have been hidden, of taking away the masks that we so easily wear. The wall is the choice to really embrace the cross. The wall is a place of death. Jesus said we must take up our cross daily. The cross is the place where we have to truly die to self. Jesus said, if we want to save our life, we must lose it. Jesus teaches again and again that the gospel is about a kind of death that leads to life. It's a pattern, a truth, a reality that comes from losing your life and then finding it again. When the rich young ruler comes to Jesus, I think this was his wall moment. Jesus invited him through the cross, but he walks away, too attached to other things. Now, for that particular young ruler, it might have been his riches, it might have been his status, it might have been his wealth, his way of life, I don't know. It's different for all of us. But if we don't figure this out, we will cling to our ego to our status, our pride, our possessions, whatever it is that we're unable to let go of in the world that we've constructed for ourselves in order to enter the kingdom. If we can let go, if we can let that stuff die, if we can become the least, then Jesus said we will be the greatest in the kingdom. If we can go to the cross, if we can push through the wall, if we can press onwards... We get to play in stage five. Now, stage five is another place of learning, like stage two was, but it's coming from a very different place. Our focus again becomes outward, but from a place of surrender rather than striving. The masks have gone, and this time you say yes, 
but you're saying yes with eyes wide open. Now you know exactly what it is that you've said yes to. And in this stage, we can appear to others to be impractical or inefficient, even a bit odd. But this is the phase that really transforms us. And if you're worried about being unproductive and inefficient, then it's worth remembering that the Bible talks about the wind of the Spirit blowing where it pleases. If you've ever seen things blown about by the wind, you know it is, on the face of it, highly impractical and highly inefficient. But it is the way that God works. And then finally, we find ourselves in the wisdom and love of stage six. We find ourselves by losing ourselves. We're back in the garden. We've taken off the fig leaf. We make do with less. Small things delight us. Love is not selfish and needy, but selfless. We operate from approval as true sons and daughters of the king, not striving for approval, knowing that we are his beloved. We can step out and do the things God asks us to without being scared of the outcomes. We are so poured out, it's kind of wild. We are living with Jesus freely and lightly, riding the waves of the unforced rhythms of grace. Now, like all seasons, there are times within seasons, and that diagram I've just talked you through will apply to different parts of our lives at different times. So... Which season are you going through right now? Can you recognise the time you were in? Let me end by encouraging you. When we hit barriers and difficulty, the Bible has two messages. Number one, don't give up. We saw that earlier in Galatians. Don't become weary. Don't give up doing good. Persevere. Number two, we are to expect trials and hardships. Not just to expect them, but to consider them joy. Joy because they build us up and teach us if we let them. As the band come back, I'm just going to read this from the message. Matthew 11, verse 28 to 30. Are you tired, worn out, burnt out on religion? Come to me, this is Jesus. Get away with me and you'll recover your life. I'll show you how to take a real rest. Walk with me and work with me. Watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me and you'll learn to live freely and lightly. How do we do that? We take off our eyes of sight and we replace them with eyes of faith. We replace fear with a faith that spelt R-I-S-K. We stay focused on Jesus as we step out of the boat and walk towards him. Amen.